Very thankful for the opportunity to come before God's people, where once again we will hear from the voice of heaven. And what we need to do is make sure that our hearts are prepared to hear what I know heaven so desperately wants to give us. And so as we prepare our hearts to do that, I believe the best way to do that is on our knees. And so I am going to kneel, and if you are able to, I'd like to invite you to kneel with me, and let's go before the Lord together, and let's pray together. Our loving Father, thank you so much for touching our hearts this weekend. Thank you for your incredible grace, your amazing mercy. Thank you, dear God, for still investing within us the breath of life. And Lord, while we are still counted amongst the land of the living and our probation has been extended, please help us not waste a single moment. We're asking you to please abide with us and do something special for us, even during this moment where we shall meditate upon your words. Please forgive us, we pray, of our sins. Grant us the presence of your Holy Spirit, and may he truly open our eyes and help us behold wondrous things out of your word. Is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. midst of so many realities of end time events, knowing that time really is almost finished, understanding that even the heathen world, people who don't believe in Christ, have rejected Jesus, you are literally seeing agitations all around us that are even saying something's going to happen in the month of September. There are those who are saying that the economy is going to have a major shift, there are others who are saying they're expecting things like perhaps even comets or some type of asteroid to do some level of damage. And then, of course, you know that there is the papal visit that's taking place that is really going to put a lot of the scenes of Bible prophecy in rapid succession. And so we're seeing that both the religious world and even the secular world, they're understanding something's going on. They're understanding that business can no longer be as usual. And God wants us to understand that the children of the world should not be wiser than the children of light. Yet we see that that, in many cases, remains to be a fact. And what God wants is he wants to raise up a people that will come back to his blueprint, back to his message, enter into an experience that is so deep and so real and so incredibly powerful and transforming that by the grace of God, we will go from lip service to literal service. And God has a message that is designed to finish this work. And that message is none other than that blessed herald of the first, the second, and the third angel's message. And it's in these messages that God has given to us that they are designed to produce if rightly understood and rightly received, it is designed to produce an experience. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you the truth. We have to get to a place where the gospel goes beyond what we talk about. And listen to what I'm saying to you, saints. 
It is impossible, I believe, for an individual that when they were in the world, there was a way they used to eat, dress, listen to things, etc. And then supposedly they come to Jesus and they're still eating, dressing and living and professing and acting certain ways like before they were converted. There's something wrong with that. My Bible, your Bible tells us that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. He's not a modified creature. He's a new creature. What that means is that the things that we used to love, we should now hate. The things that we used to hate, we should now love. There should be a very real change that exists within our hearts, even when we're by ourselves and we are not amongst the saints of God. And God can do this, brothers and sisters. But there's an experience that we need. You know, I often don't like giving titles to my messages because, you know, sometimes people call me, what's your title? And I say, I don't have one. And they say, well, we need one. And then I'll give them a title. And then nine times out of ten, when I come, the Lord will give me something different. And then I go ahead and contradict the very title I gave you. So that's the reason why I don't like giving titles. But I'll tell you, God gave me a title this morning. I was talking to the Lord. I said, Father, what do you want me to say to your people? They have heard many things. What do you want me to say? And God put this very thought in my mind. Nebuchadnezzar or Mary? And I thought to myself, what does that mean? God pressed it again in my mind. Tell them they have a choice. Nebuchadnezzar or Mary. And so I believe that the appropriate title, when you see our study, you'll understand what I'm saying. I believe that all of us need to make a decision. But it's not enough to make a decision for Christ simply. We have to make a decision in such a way that it's either going to reflect Nebuchadnezzar or Mary. And you will understand what I mean as we progress in our study. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation chapter 3. You see, in Revelation, the third chapter, the Bible lets us know that there is an experience that God's people need to have that we can make it not only through the final crisis, but ultimately make it home. And the Bible says in the book of Revelation, chapter three, I remember one time I was talking with somebody about going home to heaven. And I mentioned, I said, I'm going home to heaven. And, and somebody, you know, very theologically deep brother came to me and he said, listen, Brother Lemon, did you say heaven's our home? And I said, yes. And he said, well... Uh, I'm sorry, but I have to correct you. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says, heaven's not going to be our home. He said, the earth, when it's made new, is going to be our home. And I said, okay. I said, I, I appreciate that correction. Thank you. I said, listen, when the meeting's over, where are you going to go? He said, I'm going back home. I said, wait a minute. How long have you been there? He said, well, I've been in this house only for about 10 years. I said, well, you've been in that house for 10 years and you called it home. I said, so if you can be in your house for 10 years and call it home, if I'm going to be in heaven for a thousand years, why can't I call that home? <laughs> you understand? So I believe it is appropriate to say heaven will be our home and then we can say the new earth will be our final home. Is that all right? Yes. Amen. 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 <laughs> all right. So when we go to the book of Revelation 3, I believe that there's an experience that God wants his people to have before we go home. And I want you to see what the Bible says in Revelation, the third chapter. And if you're there, just please say amen. amen. The Bible says in Revelation chapter three, we're just going to look at verse five. This is the experience we need, brothers and sisters. The Bible says in Revelation three and verse five, it says, he that what? He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. Oh, I want Jesus to say that about me. Amen. Dwayne, I will not blot out your name out of the book of life. Why? Not because I like you, but because you overcame. 
You see, God's not going to play favorites with anybody. There is a qualification that needs to take place in which we can receive the heavenly reward. And the Bible makes it very clear. It's absolutely clear language. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You see, God wants us to understand that we are getting ready to go through the greatest trial, the greatest crisis that the people of God have faced on planet Earth. We are going to see the beast power exercise his will in a way that mankind has not seen it before. But we're also going to see God magnify himself in a way that mankind has not seen it before outside of the example of Christ himself. And so it is that as we get ready to go through this final crisis, God says that there's something that I want my people to experience. And it's called the power to overcome. And there's only one thing that God wants his people to overcome. And we know it to be that thing called sin. The Bible makes it clear that when Jesus came in Matthew 1 21, the Bible says, and they shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people, not in, but from their sins. And to be saved from something means that it no longer poses a danger to you. And so it is that Christ says, I have enough power. I have enough spirit power that if my people avail their hearts unto me, I will pour out my spirit in such a marked manner that they will be able to do what humanity by itself could never, ever had accomplished. Now, brothers and sisters, I believe with all of my heart that God is going to have a people that will have complete, total, absolute victory over every sin before Jesus comes. I believe that. Now, there's a reason I believe it. You know why? Go to Revelation 22. You know the verses. I'm just going to go ahead and play myself as the heavenly reminder to you all today. In Revelation 22, the Bible lets us know, and right there in verse 11, the Bible makes it clear that this statement is given before Revelation 16 and onward becomes a reality to the people of this earth. The Bible says in Revelation 22:11, he that is what? Unjust, let him be what? Unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is what? Righteous, let him be what? Righteous still, and he that is holy, let him be. So God acknowledges that before the second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be a people who were already righteous and will be sealed in that righteousness and will be righteous still all the way up until the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, that's clear biblical teaching. So God wants us to understand that there will be a people that will have victory completely, totally over every single debasing sin that has ever existed in humanity. And with Christ, this is possible. But we must understand that this will require painstaking effort, better known as cooperation. In the book, Christ's Object Lessons, page 331, we are told in inspiration very clearly that to have a perfect character is not an easy attainment. And it makes it clear it is going to require hard, stern battles with self. You and I are going to battle against ourselves like we never have before because we're going to get a clear picture of ourselves because we're beholding the one who is altogether lovely. And the more that you stand in the midst of light is the easier it is to understand darkness. The only reason we can see darkness is because light is present. When the light is present in front of us, it helps us see the darkness all around us. But when there's no light, then we're surrounded by darkness and we can't see it because we're already in it. And so the more that we stand behind or in front of or with 
the one who says, I am the light of the world. The more that we stand with Jesus is the easier we will see the darkness that is within our hearts. And then we're going to know what needs to be surrendered, because this also is the experience we must have before this final crisis breaks loose. There must be a purification within the people of God that everything that is defiling, everything that is ungodly, everything that the word of God speaks against must be uprooted from out of our hearts and only God can do this type of farming. And so it is that God wants us to understand that there's an experience that we desperately need. We need Christ, our righteousness, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and to uproot those deep-rooted things. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. It's easy to come to the convocations. It's easy to come here, and some of us come, and some of us come, and we know we are possessed by the demon of fornication. Some of us know we are possessed by the demon of greed, the demon of jealousy. And, you know, I used to think about this. Did you know the Church of Satan... And uh, Alistair Crawley and all those guys, they used to name demons. They would go ahead and say the demon of greed, the demon of lust, the demon of this. And I thought about that. I said, I wonder if inspiration does that. So one day I went to Ellen White's writings and I started to type in demon of and I just put it in quotations. Did you know that inspiration literally Ellen White gives at least 15 references to specific demons? The demon of greed. The demon of jealousy, the demon of lust, the demon of brothers and sisters. We don't understand. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. There are some of us that have very particular base entrapment type sins in our lives. And we come and we say, hallelujah, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. And we talk a lot of holiness. But there are some demons in our hearts that must be removed if we are going to be a people prepared to meet our God. And so God says, listen, I want you to overcome so that I don't have to blot out your name. I would prefer to blot out your sins. But it's going to require cooperation with Jesus. There are things right now that many of us as God's people do. I marvel. Sometimes, you know, Facebook is a very annoying thing. Seriously, and and I'm finding myself constantly being rooted and weeded further and further away from that thing. It is a very annoying thing sometimes. All I do sometimes, and some of you notice because a lot of you might be my friends. And a lot of times, the only time you hear from me, hey, folks, getting ready to come to this area. Uh, Keep us in prayer. Blessings. And then we take off. Because Facebook is very, it's, it's very entrapping. And one of the things that hurts me is there are a lot of people that I know from all sorts of parts of the world that profess the different principles of present truth. But at the same time, we will go ahead and we will deliberately put posts up about who won the game. Whether it be basketball, baseball, football, everything else. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world can you acknowledge the word of God? And believe that you're living in the end times and all these things and Christ is in the most holy place, getting ready to finish the work. And here you are wasting your money, wasting your time and giving a compromising example to the people that behold you as a minister of the gospel. And you are going to go ahead and be right there at the basketball court, right there in the in the arena and go around talking about they won and so on. When the Bible says in Philippians chapter two, something very clearly go to Philippians two with me. You see, sometimes we talk about this thing about victory. And we don't understand that this is why I believe Joe Cruz was right when he put in that little book, Reaping the Whirlwind. He said sin must be defined because too often we use this broad term called sin. Some of us get a little bit more specific and we say sin is the breaking of God's law, etc. But we don't understand. There's a lot of things that the Bible condemns that if we were to magnify the law of God, we would begin to see there's things that we advocate and practice and do and promote that the Bible actually says is evil. It's wrong. 
It's the works of the flesh and all who do so shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, the Bible says in the book of Philippians chapter two, and I've always asked individuals who believe in competitive sports. I said, how in the world can you follow this? How can we endorse it? How can we participate in it? And at the same time, read something like this. The Bible says in Philippians chapter two, it says in verse one, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies, it says, fulfill ye my joy that you might be what? Like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. So notice God is literally pressing through the apostle Paul the importance of unity amongst the brethren. You see that? Same love, one mind, one accord. God is really pressing it. Now he goes in verse three and he says, therefore, let what? Nothing. Now, last I checked, nothing means nothing. There's no room for anything else to be added. Nothing means nothing. It says, let nothing be done through what? Strife or vainglory. Strife literally in the Greek means rivalry. Literally, the Greek word for strife is rivalry. The Bible says, let how many things? Let nothing be done through strife or rivalry or for vainglory. You know, there's one way a man can get puffed up is when he can perform that dunk over another brother and everybody cheers and cries. When a brother can try to shake you out and then that guy centers his focus on your hips and next thing you know, you think you're shaking him out and that, boom, and then he just tackles you down to the ground and stands over you with that pigskin in his hand that called that football. And he just stands there and looks at you as he defeated you and laid you down. Sometimes that thing rises up inside of us called vainglory. And the Bible says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. It says, but in what kind of mind? It says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others what? How can you strive to beat somebody and at the same time esteem them better than yourself? You can't do that, brothers and sisters. You can't strive to beat somebody. The whole purpose of me being on this court right now is to declare you the loser and declare me the winner. Yet, I'm going to esteem you better than myself. And on top of that, what does it say next? It says, let each esteem other better than themselves. It says, look not every man on his what? On his own thing. So therefore, don't go around thinking about what you can accomplish, what you can do well, what you can do for yourself. But it says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. This means that you're looking out for them. You're looking out for the best of them. And what hurts me is that we actually have decided to take the very thing that brought so much disunity amongst the disciples, which was competition. And now we use this very same principle to try to establish our youth in the church by setting up all these different teams. And we don't understand this is not the method of Christ. This is not what God wants. This is not something that the Lord promotes. We need to understand that we need to esteem others better than ourselves. We need to not look for what can be done for us, but what we can do for others. And you cannot do that when you have the spirit of competition. Can't do it. And that's why in Galatians 5, God just summed it up real nice. Go to Galatians 5. When you look at Galatians, the fifth chapter, what did God say here? Look at this. The Bible says in Galatians, the fifth chapter. Notice what the Bible says in Galatians 5. Now look carefully at verse 19 and watch what the Bible says here. In Galatians 5 and verse 19, the Bible says, now, the works of the what? Flesh are manifest, which are these? First, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, 
What's that next word? Did you know that to emulate means to try to be equal to or better than somebody else? That's what it means to emulate. Satan was emulating God. He was trying to be equal to him, but in truth, he was trying to actually be better than him. He was trying to supersede him. And that's why whenever you study even the very spirit of competition, it all started in heaven and it did not initiate with God. It initiated with Satan. This is not the kind of stuff that God wants our minds to begin getting fixed into, especially in such a late hour in Earth's history, brothers and sisters. There is a tremendous focus that God wants his people to have. Now, the Bible also said that adultery was in there. Now, brothers and sisters, we know that the Bible makes it very clear that adultery is when a man or a woman has interrelationships one with another and they did it outside of the marriage covenant. But I want you to see what the Bible says in Matthew 5. You see, these are things that we would do well to continue to remind ourselves of. And I believe, being here, that I can see that it still is necessary to give this reminder. The Bible says in the book of Matthew, the fifth chapter, and when you get there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, it says, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not do what? Commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever does what? Looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath already committed adultery with her in his heart. We have to understand, brothers, that a covenant needs to be made with our eyes that we will not look upon a woman in a lustful manner. We have to understand that God does not take it lightly. God calls that thing sin. And sin separates man from God. And God does not want us to keep lust resident within our hearts. We need Christ to uproot these things. Why do you think it is that in verse 19, the first four works of the flesh all deal with sexual sin? You ever paid attention to that? Galatians 5, 19, when you look at it, it says the, lust of the, the, the works of the flesh are these, adultery, fornication, lasciviousness, licentiousness, all of that, uncleanness, all of that deals with sensual sin. God knows that this was going to be an issue in the last days. So God is telling his men, as well as his women, that do not even look in these lustful manners. There are some who have thoughts in their minds that says, if I could, I would. And in the eyes of God, once a man gets to a place that he says, if I could, I would, in the eyes of God, you just did it. And that's why he says that we should not even look upon a woman to lust after her. But sisters, we have to understand that Proverbs 7 is a reality as well. So go to Proverbs 7. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, the seventh chapter. And when you get there, just please let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, the seventh chapter. Brothers and sisters, it's a sad reality. And I say this because I'm your brother. It's a sad reality that when brethren come to a holy convocation, they still have to battle with where they look because God's women still do not understand a very important principle found in Proverbs 7. The Bible says in Proverbs, the seventh chapter, notice what it says in the 10th verse. The Bible says in Proverbs 7 and verse 10, and behold, there met him a woman with the what? Attire of what? And harlot. Now notice, in the verse, was the woman a harlot in that verse? No, but it says she was wearing the what? Attire of an harlot. That means that clothing has personality. Clothing sends a message, as Councils on Health, page 600 says. Our words, our actions, our dress are daily living preachers, the prophet says. And she says, either gathering with Christ or scattering abroad. 
We have to understand that when you get dressed in the day, when you put your clothes on, you got to look in the mirror and ask yourself one simple question. What sermon is my is my outfit preaching? Because every outfit preaches a sermon. The Bible makes it clear. So there are times when even at a convocation, cleavage is still being seen. Hip huggers, all these tight jeans and everything fitting tight and accentuating the body. And sisters, we actually believe that this is right. Listen to what I'm saying to you, because what I'm saying to you, I'm speaking to your hearts because I believe we're family, brothers and sisters. What I'm telling you is that there's something wrong when we can have convocation after convocation after convocation after convocation. And when you come to the convocation years later, there's still nakedness all over the place. That means something's not getting across. Do you understand, saints? Something's not getting across. And woe be to us as leaders who think that blindness is virtuous. We have to love our sisters enough to tell them, listen, this is not acceptable. This is something that God makes very clear that is offensive to him. This is something that promotes the spirit of adultery. You see, it's easy to say victory over sin, victory over sin, and we use it as this new coined term. But brothers and sisters, we have to understand when we really look at what is sin, it's a lot deeper. It's a lot broader. This is why Psalms 119.96 tells us, thy commandments are exceeding broad. They're very deep. So listen, let us not fall into this trap of talking about overcoming. It's happening a lot, brothers and sisters. We love to teach the sanctuary. We love to talk about the most holy place work of Christ. And we do a lot of cute uh, gymnastics to try to show folks of the realities of what's going on in the sanctuary. But brothers and sisters, if that truth does not go from our heads to our hearts in our practical day to day living, we will not be counted amongst the overcomers. And as a result of that, rather than our sins being blotted out, our names get blotted out. We got to get back to the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and we have to test everything. Amen. You got to test everything. Whatever fashions you and I like, test it with the word. Amen. Whatever food groups you love to eat, test it with the word. Whatever entertainment you like to watch, test it with the word. I challenge you, brothers and sisters, listen to me. I'm telling you, I'm speaking as a man who have done this myself and do this myself. In other words, it's still continuing in my life. I test everything. If I'm going to upgrade from one cell phone to another, I have to ask myself, why do I do it before I just do it? Because sometimes we're trying to keep up with Joneses and get the latest and the greatest, like Pastor Doug said earlier, so that way somebody could just see we got the latest. And we feed that demon called pride. Ask yourself, why do I drive the car that I drive? Why did I pick this house versus that house? Why is it that I like this outfit versus another outfit? I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, the more that you and I begin to ask ourselves the question, why do I do what I do? Why do I buy what I buy? Why do I have the philosophy that I have? You will be amazed at what we will discover is in our hearts. And Christ says, that's exactly what I need to uproot, that I can count you as one of my overcomers. Amen. And I can blot out your sin and keep your name in. Yes. And so it is, brothers and sisters. If we truly want to be a people prepared to meet our God, if we want to have this experience with Jesus, that by the grace of God, we can make it through the final crisis. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says there's only one way. He 
that overcometh. That's the one that's going to be clothed in the white raiment. That's the one that he promises. I'm not going to blot your name out. I'm so thankful because God is not making it hard for us. He's making it comprehensive. He's saying, this is the experience you need with me now. Because listen, folks, we sin because we love it. When Jesus was tempted, it caused pain. When we're tempted, it brings pleasure. We have to understand that God says, I need the character of my son reflected in the hearts of my people. And the question is, how in the world does this get done? So the more that I begin looking at the realities of what's getting ready to come, the more that I see, oh, my word, Lord, there are so many things happening in the world. But look at what's going on in my heart. I still don't know you as it is my privilege to know you. I still don't love you as it is my privilege to love you. Therefore, how can I be counted amongst the overcomers? But Jesus says something to us, and it's found in John 16. And what Jesus says to us, I believe we need to make sure we take this home with us. The Bible says in John 16, and I want you to carefully look at verse 33. In John 16 and verse 33, the Bible says, these things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have what? Peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be what? Be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. You see, Christ is saying that we must overcome. Jesus says, yes, it does seem impossible, but be of good cheer because he says, I overcame. So because Christ overcame, then the question is, how can I overcome? And the answer is Revelation 3 again. Go back to Revelation 3. Christ says, be of good cheer. I already overcame. Whatever the battle may be that you and I will face, whatever the tribulation is that you and I may go through, Christ says, be of good cheer. Because he says, I've already overcome the world. And therefore, the Bible says in Revelation 3 and verse 21, it says in Revelation 3 and verse 21, to him that what? Overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also what? Overcame and am set down in my father's throne. Jesus makes it clear, be of good cheer because I've already overcome. So therefore, God says, I want you to overcome. And the only way to overcome is as Christ overcame. That's the only way. So again, here we are beholding Jesus. We have to look at him. You see that? Christ, our example. That was my assignment all this weekend. Christ, our example. We have to look to Jesus and look at his example. Jesus, how did you overcome the world? Because I'm battling with the lust of the flesh. I'm battling with the lust of the eyes. I'm battling with the pride of life. And often it overcomes me when you're calling me to overcome it. And I can't overcome it by myself. So now I'm looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. And I'm looking at him saying, Lord, how did you overcome the lust of the flesh? How did you overcome the lust of the eyes? How did you overcome the pride of life? How did you overcome the world? Because that's our only hope. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to let you in on a clue. And I believe that just looking at this verse is going to teach us much. I want you to go to John chapter 5 with me. When you go to John the fifth chapter, you're going to see a dynamic in the life of Christ that quite honestly was lived out through his entire life, literally from the cradle to the grave. And I want you to see how the Bible brings it out in John the fifth chapter. And I want you to see what it says as we consider verse 30. 
The Bible says in John 5 and verse 30, and I like this verse because we have to understand the dynamics of who Christ was before this experience. Jesus was God. Now, he is God, but we know he veiled himself in flesh. So he didn't live on this earth as God, per se. He lived as a human being. That's why he's also called the son of man. And when Christ lived on this earth, he chose to live a certain way. And I want you to see it in John 5.30. The Bible says in John 5 and verse 30, I can of my own self do what? Nothing. Nothing. That's a deep thing to say when you can do everything. That's a powerful statement of humility. When Jesus could do anything. There was a time brethren came to him and they were getting ready to arrest him. Peter pulls out that sword, gets ready to chop a brother's head off. And Jesus says, listen, 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 put that sword away. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He says, you don't understand. He says, if I wanted to, I can call a legion of angels right now to deliver me, and they would. So Jesus wanted to make it clear, I could do pretty much whatever I want because I am God. But he chose to live on this earth as a complete, humble servant. And so it is, he says, I can of my own self do nothing. And then he goes on to say, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Literally, this is how Jesus lived his whole life. You can take whatever story you want, and it's purely a manifestation of John 5.30. Whatever story you want. From Gethsemane, the cross, you can look at the times when they came and he was in the temple and he's turning tables over and they came and attacked him and started to go after him. Times when they tried to take him and throw him off a cliff, everything. At every stage of Christ's life, John 530 was his life. It was his reality. I can of my own self do nothing. I only do what the father wants. I completely, holistically, absolutely, unadulteratedly rely upon my father to do for me what I will not do for myself. You know what this is called? This is something very special that should be special to you and I. You know, this is called this, this lifestyle of Jesus we just looked at in just one simple verse. It's called the faith of Jesus. And the reason why this is important is because we're told in the book of Revelation 14 that here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So when we look at this, when we think of the faith of Jesus, we are told, and I want you to look at this. I'm so sorry that the screen is the way it is, so I'll read it from here. It says the faith of Jesus, it is talked of, but not understood. I want you to think about that. This is, by the way, third selected messages, page 172, paragraph three. It says the faith of Jesus, it is talked of, but not understood. What constitutes the faith of Jesus that belongs to the third angel's message? Jesus becoming our sin bearer that he might become our sin pardoning savior. He was treated as we deserve to be treated. He came to our world and took our sins that we might take his righteousness. Now watch the close. And faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. I want you to think about that. Faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply and fully and entirely is the faith of Jesus. Third Selected Messages, page 172, paragraph 3. You see, when you listen to a lot of sermons, sometimes we don't talk a lot about the faith of Jesus. Yet, that's the very thing we need to finish the work. The very thing we need is to finish the work. It's not enough to just simply say, here are they that keep the commandments of God, because many of Christians pursue that wrong. We often try to be righteous without God. 
We often try to be righteous in and of ourselves. We often try to be righteous simply because we say we know better, therefore I'll do better. And we have learned that determination is not enough. But here goes the Bible letting us know there's a key ingredient. Yes, the saints keep the commandments of God, but they also have the faith of Jesus. And the faith of Jesus is the enabler to keep the commandments of God. Because now I am trusting fully, completely, amply and entirely for Christ to do in me what I cannot do for myself. Do I cooperate with the Lord? Oh, yes. We're going to talk about that. No legal justification here. No forensic justification here. No, sir. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that God wants us to recognize that what he is requiring of us cannot be done simply by us. There's an experience that we need with Jesus. Wherein his power, his influence, his strength becomes our power, our influence, our strength. It's going to require that wonderful little thing called cooperation. Now, the reason why I like this study, I appreciate this study, is because I learned something. You see, all these movements that are getting ready to take place, even this month, did you know that you could see it summed up? If you really wanted to understand the issue between the mark of the beast and the seal of the living God, I believe that Great Controversy 571 and 572 helps us tremendously with this. When you read Great Controversy, especially 572, it lets us know that the great work, in fact, the secret of the papacy's power is to develop two classes of people. And I want you to think about this. Literally, the secret of the papacy's power. You read this on page 572. The secret of the papacy's power is to produce two classes of people that will basically sum up almost all of mankind. Those who are saved by their merits and those who are saved in their sins. This is the very last work That is getting ready to come before us. That's why, but brothers, I don't know if you understand it. You see, we have been told for a long time that the third angel's message is justification by faith and verity, right? I started thinking about it. I just did a sermon. You're going to hear it. It's going to be on audio verse in a little bit. I did it just a week or so ago. And the sermon is called the counterattack. And the reason why it was called the counterattack is I showed systematically that the very birth of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, of course, we know uh, Martin Luther being recognized as a father. We know there were others who started before him, but Martin Luther made that most profound hit in the world. That's why he's often referred to as the father of the Reformation. Now, what was Martin Luther's bent? His bent was on justification by faith, right? Now, sola scriptura, sola fide. So sola scriptura, the Bible alone, sola fide, which was justification by faith alone. Okay, that was his emphasis. Now, when Martin Luther put forth that effort, that helped springboard many other blessed, precious truths that other reformers began to pick up. Wesley started to do sanctification by faith, Roger Williams, religious liberty, etc. All these things started coming into the picture. Now watch. What happened was the very foundation of Protestantism was the understanding of the Bible alone and by faith alone in Jesus Christ to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Martin Luther did not have the full understanding like we have today, yet he had a very right understanding of a beginning phase of the work. Now... Understanding that, did you know that last year was absolutely monumental because it was not just an attack, it was an attack on the third angel. You see, last year, never really seen it done before between Protestantism and the papacy, last year there was a very deliberate statement saying, we believe in justification by faith too. And when they made that statement, we believe in justification by faith too, that's when they came to the rationale, which was, therefore, there's no longer a need to protest. 
And you remember the great evangelical said, this is a heaven-born message, and everybody started pooling together. What we don't understand is that it didn't stop there. August 28th last year, I played the video clip. I showed them, literally, it happened on August 28th, and I preached on August 29th. I caught the video, put the video up on the screen. Now the Vatican is erecting a certain part in Rome where they are going to pay homage to Martin Luther. Pope Francis wanted to make it clear, hey, and, they, and by the way, they said Seventh-day Adventists played a major part in this reality. But Pope Francis wanted to put his words in, yes, we are very happy about this and so on. Why? Because they're saying we believe in justification by faith, too. But what happens is God wants us to understand that while we see the very essence and foundation of the third angel's message now being more forcefully attacked than we've ever seen it before, God expects his people to give a counterattack. And so you look for that message. That message, we cover some deep things on it. Now, the point is, right now, there is a message that is sweeping the majority of the world and Christendom, which is telling people you can be saved either in your sins or by your merits. And it's basically sweeping almost every class of religion and humanity all over the world. And that's why Ellen White told us in this inspired statement, Faith and Works, page 18, there is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. This is the emphasis. And can you imagine, this is in the time of the third angel. So while we must give the warning of the Sunday law crisis, oh, I believe we need to emphasize the experience. We need the experience, brothers and sisters, that we may know how to enter into. You see, when you study the Bible, look at Romans 1. You remember Romans 1? Go there. If you look at Romans, the first chapter... You'll remember what the Bible says, Romans 1, and it talks about it in verse 16 and 17. And notice what the Bible says, Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. It is not that victory over sin is not possible, but we don't want to fall into the traps that the devil is trying to put. You see, the message of saved in sin is also a victory over sin message. It's just perverted. I don't have to stop sinning myself, per se, because Christ did it all. So therefore, I just claim his merits to cover my sinful life. That's an endorsement of sin. That's why I hate that picture. I'm going to be honest with you. Now, I mean, when I say hate it, that's a strong word. But I really am. I don't like it because it is such a false representation of the gospel. You know a picture I'm talking about. There's a picture that we've seen sometimes even on quarterlies and everything else. In a lot of our books in the ABCs, we see this picture of a white man. And he has on a dirty robe. And he's hanging his head down low. And then when that man is hanging there like that, all of a sudden you see these hands with a beautiful white robe. And the white robe is going over the dirty robe. You've seen that picture before, haven't you? I don't like that picture. You know why? That contradicts the Bible. Go to Zechariah 3. We'll go back to Romans 1. Go to Zechariah 3. If you go to Zechariah 3, notice what the Bible says. I don't like that picture. I think we need to change it. And people try to be funny. You know, so I said it on Facebook one time and some person said, oh, well, I guess we should have a naked picture. I'm like, no, man, don't. Why you miss the point? Why give a picture that gives an absolute contradictory and false image of the gospel and your best rationale is, oh, what, should we put a naked picture? No. 
The bottom line is if you can't tell the truth, then just don't put the picture up. You see, I learned that in the history of the Reformation, there's a lot of power in pictures. It was one day that the pompous pope would often ride around on his horse with all of his retinue before him. And they were trying to figure out what's the best way to help the people understand the deceptive power of the pope in comparison to Christ. And in rather than preaching it, they decided to draw up a picture. I don't know if you remember that story. And they drew up a picture and they drew a picture of the lowly Jesus. And then they drew a picture of the pompous pope. And they put it up on that wall and everybody who walked by, they just looked and they said, Jesus, the Pope. And they saw there is no match here. And many of people's minds were delivered on the power of a picture. So what does that tell me? If people's minds can be delivered through the power of a picture, that means people's minds can be deceived through the power of a picture. So when I began to look at that picture and see this picture of a man with that dirty, nasty robe, and here it is that this beautiful white robe is now covering his dirty, nasty robe, I said, that is not what the Bible teaches. Go to Zechariah 3. If you're there, say amen. amen. The Bible says in Zechariah, the third chapter, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel and he answered and spake unto those that stood before him saying, do what? Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him, he said, behold, I have caused thine iniquity to what? Pass. Notice that I've caused thine iniquity to pass from thee and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. So God takes away the dirty garment and then he clothes him with the right garment. He does not put his beautiful righteousness over our sin. He takes away our sin. That's why John says, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. If you're going to give a picture, at least be biblically accurate. And so it is that Jesus wanted us to understand that while there's false messages of victory over sin, saved in sin. Or saved by merits, meaning the more that I do is the more that I merit and I have a right to go to God and completely contradict Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Then it says not of works, less what? No wonder some people have such a bold attitude towards God. Because they think my merits is what made me right in this area. And as a result of that, I'm all right. So you owe me heaven. You owe me my blessings. And there's a lot of people that have that arrogant attitude towards Christ. So Satan exults over these false messages of victory over sin. I saved myself. It's still victory over sin, but they think they did it. When they really didn't. Because once we put the magnifying glass on our lives, we can see that while we thought we were not adulterers, many of us discovered, oh, my word, we are adulterers. While we thought we did not have another God in our lives, we say, Lord, I have many gods in my life. That's why I appreciate God putting the magnifying glass. Listen, that work has not died. That work has not died, brothers and sisters. You need to put the magnifying glass on the commandments of God. You need to let us remind us as Seventh-day Adventists, but certainly the world, we have to let them see the depth of God's commandments because there are many people that think I'm okay. And we already know what that disease is called. It's called Laodicea, brothers and sisters. Thinking we're all right. 
when we're all wrong. And so it is saved by merits, deception, saved in sin, deception, saved by faith, reality. And what Christ wants is he needs that message to be lifted up in powerful, clear clarion tones. That's why we go back to Romans chapter one. Now, when you go to Romans one, watch what the Bible says as we consider the principle of the Bible. Watch how the gospel works. And it's, it's beautiful. Oh, my word, brothers, it is beautiful. Look at this. Romans one. In Romans one, we are going to help others as God is helping us to understand the very essence of the gospel. The very essence of justification by faith. And so the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, if you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in Romans 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Now watch verse 17. For therein is what? The righteousness of God what? Now hold on to that point. That's why for years we have been trying to help people understand the gospel is not limited to lip service. The gospel was always meant to be something revealed. It was something that was to be made manifest. You understand that? And so it is that it says for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from what? Faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. So notice that God makes it clear. That the gospel is God's power. It leads to salvation. It belongs to everybody who believes. Regardless of genealogy, location, creed, or any of that other stuff. Jew and the Greek. And in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. From faith to faith. First, it's revealed to us as we behold Christ our righteousness. And as we behold Christ, our righteousness, there is a reciprocating effect that is done very miraculously and spiritually by which God, as we behold him, as we study him and as we commune with him, he produces something called love in our hearts. The Bible says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. God begins to put that love. And that's good news. There's somebody in here, perhaps, that says, I don't love God and I don't even know if I can. The great news is that while God wants love, God doesn't command you to give it because he already knows you can't. That's why Christ says, I got to put it in you. See, Jesus says, I am love. So you need me in you. But the only way I can come is through my spirit. And the only people who get my spirit are those who ask. So you got to ask for God's spirit. Lord, put your love within my heart. Teach me how to love the loving things of Jesus. And the more that we study, that's called cultivation. Oh, brothers and sisters, I praise God for country living. Because the more you start working in that farm and you work that soil, you start understanding cultivation. You start understanding how serious it is when you got to break up the soil. When you got to put the right nutrients in it because the soil has been so depleted and so damaged. And then when the soil is just right, now the seed can go in. And as the seed dies, life comes out and et cetera. Brothers and sisters, it is a cultivation. That's how you love God. It's not like God just simply just one day just goes over you and just goes whoosh. And you you, you feel wind and you say, "I, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. No, brothers and sisters, it's cultivation. The spirit of God will work with us. And as we study, remember, he guides us into all truth. And God's word is. True. So we're going to go through the word and the spirit of God is going to guide it. He's going to help us behold the lovely image of Jesus. 
And by beholding that blessed image, we're going to be drawn to him. And as we get drawn closer and closer and closer, I'm telling you, like I said yesterday, he is the first and the only man that I have found to be attractive. Jesus is beautiful, brothers and sisters. And as you start to behold and behold and behold, there's something miraculous that God begins to put inside of us that we never could have manufactured ourselves. And that thing is called love. And Jesus said, if you love me, what happens? So now the just shall live by faith and we go from faith to faith. Number one, we behold Christ. He's revealed to us. And then as we behold Christ, now Christ reveals himself through us. Now, the reason why this is important is because we come to Jesus by what? Faith. Go to Colossians 2. When you go to Colossians, the second chapter, I want you to notice what the Bible says. We come to Jesus by faith. That's why I love going through Leviticus 4. Leviticus 4, I think, spells out the plan of salvation clearer than many other verses that I've gone through in the Bible. I mean, it spells it out so clear. It's beautiful. I love this thing. It's like the Bible is this incredible puzzle that God just allows us through his spirit to begin to put it all together and we begin to understand him. The Bible says in Colossians 2 and verse 6, as ye have therefore what? Received Christ Jesus. How do we receive him? By faith. faith. So it says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so do what? Walk ye in him. So if I receive Christ by faith, then that means that I must walk by faith and not by. You understand? So the same implicit trust that I had in God to save me from the penalty of sin is the same implicit trust and cooperation I will work with God that he can save me from the power of sin. Moment by moment, day by day. And so it is that the more that we begin to study this beautiful topic, we begin to learn that justification by faith is something that is not just something that happened in the past. It's something that walks with us. You see, there was a statement that was used by Ellen White in the book Faith and Works. And she says that another term for sanctification is justification retained. Justification retained. And I thought to myself, that's pretty powerful because I, I had to ask, why justification by faith? Why is it that that's? The third angel's message in Verity. Why? You sometimes have to ask, why did God choose justification? He said it on purpose. And the more that we begin to understand that, this is why 1888 was very powerful. You see, when you look at 1888, you know the champions at that time was none other than Jones and Wagner. Now, what did Ellen White say about these brothers and their message? She says in last day events 200, the Lord in his great mercy sent a most precious message to his people through elders E.J. Wagner and A.T. Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It presented what? Justification through faith in the surety. It invited the people to receive the righteousness of Christ, which is made what? Manifest in obedience to all the commandments of God. This is what the papacy is afraid of. Is the right understanding of justification by faith is always making manifest a people that are obedient to all of God's commandments. That is what justification by faith was always supposed to produce. The just shall live by how? Faith. Well, what does James 2 say? Go to James 2. I like looking at these verses over and over and over again. I have no problem with that. It's called cementing. 
in James 2, what is the Bible saying? The Bible says in James chapter 2, notice what the Bible says. The Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 20, and I give you these verses because though some of us know it, there might even be one person that doesn't. And if I want us to see it, James 2 and verse 20, the Bible says, well, will thou know, O vain man, that faith without what? Works is dead. So the just shall live by faith, but faith is always revealed by works. Now, what is the motive of those works? Galatians 5. When you go to Galatians 5, notice this. It's beautiful. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, what is the motive of these works that reveals our faith? The Bible says in Galatians 5, notice what it says in verse 6. The Bible says in Galatians 5 and verse 6, if you're there, say amen. amen. The Bible says in Galatians 5, 6, for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by so love becomes the motive. Love becomes the motive of my works, which reveals that I've been justified by faith. This is the balance of justification by faith that is under the banner of the third angel's message and must be given to the people so that they will not fall for one of those two deadly traps. Saved in sin, saved by merits. We are saved by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And we need to understand that it is to be revealed. And that's why we're told in this beautiful quotation. Do you ask, how am I to abide in Christ? In the same way as you received him at first. That's what we just read in Colossians 2, 6. Somebody says, how am I to abide in Christ? In the same way as you received him at first. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Notice that, Colossians 2, 6. It says, the just shall live by faith. You gave yourself to God to be his holy, to serve and obey him, and you took Christ as your savior. Notice, you could not yourself atone for your sins or change your heart. But having given yourself to God, you believe that he, for Christ's sake, did all this for you. By faith, you became Christ, and by faith, you are to grow up in him. By giving and taking, you are to give all your heart, your will, your service. Give yourself to him to obey what? All his requirements. And you must take all, Christ, the fullness of all blessing, to abide in your heart, to be your strength, your righteousness, your everlasting helper, to give you power to obey. Our Father cares, page 72, paragraph 3. God wanted us to understand as we came to him fully, completely, amply trusting him to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So it is that that's how we walk with him every day. So if God says, I want you to change some things about your life, Lord, I can't do it, but I'm trusting that you will give me power to do it. What does that power look like? What does it look like to trust God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves? John 5. Beautiful verse, brothers and sisters. What does it look like? I want to know what it looks like. You know what I'm saying? Seriously, because one time I was studying and, you know, you hear a lot about victory over sin, etc. But the question is, well, what does it look like? How does it work? Well, let's look at John 5. I like John 5 because it's a powerful story. I wish I had the commentary from Ministry of Healing, but that's all right. You can read it. In John 5, what does the Bible say? Look at the story. John 5, verse 1. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem now, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called of the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, 
of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Will thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another step is down before me. Now watch these next points. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. What does the Bible say in verse 9? And what? Immediately, the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Now, when Jesus told him, take up your mat and walk, all the power, everything that was needed to supply and have performed what he commanded was already set in place. All the brother had to do was exercise faith that what Jesus said is so. So what did he do? He acted on the word of God. Ellen White makes it clear that if this brother would have waited to feel energy in his legs, he never would have gotten up. So it is that he was not waiting to feel the synovial fluid get all back in between the joints. He was not waiting to feel blood flow, whatever. He heard the word of God. He trusted and believed God that God had enough power to perform what he commanded me to do. And therefore, he said, Lord, I'm going to trust that what you said is already done. So now I'm just going to act on your word. And as he put his hand on the ground to start getting up, immediately blood flow started to go through his legs. All of a sudden, cells started coming back alive. All of a sudden, synovial fluid is all developing in between his joints. This brother was experiencing the power of God. He acted on the word. This is why we're told in early writing 72, faith is ours to exercise. But joyful feeling and the blessing are God's to give to us. Brothers and sisters. We can live by faith. Whatever God tells you to do, all his biddings are enablings. So that means that whatever God tells us to do, we can do it. So there's nothing that we have to be fearful of. There's no time for us to say, Lord, it's impossible. If God says, take all your money out of your account, put it into the work. Put that money you've been saving, put it into the work. Start building the ark. You see, when Noah saw that the end was coming, Noah took everything he had and he put it into the only thing that was going to last. And that was the ark. There was a lot of people, I'm sure, that said, Noah, you crazy, man. You do, are you, you going to mess up your IRA? You're going to mess up your 401k? Don't you understand? Yes, the stocks are down, but it's going to get back up. Noah says, I don't believe in none of that foolishness. He says, I believe in this stock right here. I'm putting all my stock into the word of God. And so it is. Noah said, I'm going to do it. Now, God is telling some of us to do that. God is telling some of us there's things that we're reserving. And some of us are like that man who built the barns. And God is maybe, maybe is giving us different instruction. And some of us are going to say, Lord, how can I do it? Lord, can you really take care of me? Brothers and sisters, you see, that's the frustration. There are times when God calls us to do things. That we forget God is saying, don't you understand I'm holding myself accountable to get it done? Amen. God says, I hold myself accountable. So if I tell you to do it, God says, then I am responsible to make sure you get it done. And I have never failed a case. Amen. And the more that we learn to trust him and act 
on his word. God is calling some of us from our common occupations. Volume 7 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 27, we are told clear as day that there are some that God and his spirit is going to call people out of the common vocations of life. And that he is going to have them get equipped to go forward in gospel work. Amen. I don't know if we understand, brothers and sisters, we're living in a time where it's all hands on deck. Everything's about to wrap up. We're all going to be hit, brothers and sisters. Remember, all the virgins are sleeping, and eventually it's going to awaken us, but some will be revealed as wise, and some will be revealed as foolish. God doesn't want us to be the foolish virgins. And so God is trying to say to us right now, you and I must learn what it means to live by faith. To walk by faith, it doesn't mean that we have some type of mystical, magical ascent where God is just doing a bunch of stuff and we're doing nothing. Not any of that foolishness. No, brothers and sisters, there's going to require that thing called choice. The exercise of the will. He's going to show us what to do. He's going to give us every promise, every power source to make it available to you. But he will not choose for you. You're going to have to choose. Can you imagine that there are some people that might be getting ready to get married Spent money, told everybody, and next thing you know, God's going to say, she's not the one. He's not the one. Stop the marriage. And our minds are going to say, Lord, but we, we put so much money out. We, we spent, we prepared. We told everybody, I can't deal with that ridicule. God says, see, that's the problem that I have with humanity. We don't know how to just listen and do what he says and trust him. Think, if we really trusted God, would we ever question him? We wouldn't question him because we would say, whatever you say, I know it's got to be right. So our issue is a trust issue, better known as a faith issue. And what Jesus wants is he wants to develop within us such trust, such belief, such confidence in him that we will recognize, Lord. Whom have I on earth beside thee? If I go under the ground, you're there. If I go anyplace else, you're there. Lord, what could I possibly accomplish without you? You've already said it. Without me, you can do nothing. Yes. Teach me, oh God, to walk by faith. Yes. Teach me to trust you. And trusting God is more than an intellectual ascent. Okay. Trusting God is something that is revealed, it's demonstrated in the life through the exercise of the will which he gave to us that makes us different from the animal kingdom. And so it is that when the prophet of God was asked the question, when she started to look at the third angel's message and the question came in where she says, several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Evangelism 190. Somebody says, well, what exactly is justification by faith? Is it purely the pardoning power of God? It's not just the pardoning, it's the keeping power of God. Justification by faith is an overall principle that God teaches us, which is this. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. Testimonies to Ministers and Gospel Workers, 456, paragraph 3. Justification by faith reminds us that we were sinful, we were wretched, we were miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and we had a one-way ticket straight to eternal separation from God. And it was only through the merits and the righteousness and the love of Christ that he was willing to save sinners if we would simply accept the atonement. Yeah. 
We believed it by faith and we said, Lord, upon your merits, I trust that you can put me in a right position with God. We confess our sins. We declare before God, by your grace, you are mine and I am yours. God cleanses us and he pardons us from our sins. And then God says, now go on unto perfection. We say, Lord, that's hard. God says, remember, the same way you came to me is the same way you walk in me. When I say you can be perfect, you believe that I can make you perfect. When I say you can have victory over sin, you believe I can give you victory over everything. Lord, I love sex. God says, I can teach you to hate it outside of marriage. Amen. 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 Somebody says, but I love smoking. I love drugs. I love whatever. God says, I can show you how to hate what you love. Show you how to love what you hate. God says, I can do anything in a heart that's willing. And the same way that he did for me, what I could not do for myself to bring me in is the same way I'm trusting him every step of the way to do for me what I can't do for myself. And this is how justification is retained because we're getting ready to go up against the beast power, brothers and sisters. That's going to help us realize that we have nothing in us that can beat him. There is nothing in us. There's no planning. There's no devising. There's nothing in any of you and in me that can beat what's getting ready to come. We need Christ in us, brothers and sisters. We need the righteousness of Jesus Christ like never before. And that thing must be real. And we have to reveal it and testify to the world the falsehood of the message of the papacy. No, it's not saved in sin. No, it's not saved by merit. But it is saved by grace through faith, which is revealed in our works that are motivated by love. Somebody says, I want God to lay my glory in the dust. Somebody says, I want God to lay my glory in the dust. We have a natural glory about ourselves, brothers and sisters. We think we look good, bought nice houses, cars, whatever it may be. Some of us know how to talk, preach, speak, great articulation. Oh, there's much things that we could say about ourselves when Jesus is absent from our presence. But I want God to lay our glory in the dust. We need it laid in the dust. How many of you want God, his glory, to lay ours in the dust. You want that, don't you? Well, brothers and sisters, I didn't forget the title of our message. You see, this is why God gave it to me. You see, Nebuchadnezzar and Mary have something in common. I wonder if you got it. You know what Nebuchadnezzar and Mary had in common? Both of their glories were laid in the dust. Is that right? You remember, it was in Daniel 4, 29 through 33. What did Nebuchadnezzar say? Is not this the great Babylon that I've built? He began to talk about his majesty. He began to talk about his glory. And as he talked about his glory, brothers and sisters, and he was gloating over what he seemed to think was his accomplishments and his abilities. Next thing you know, that voice of judgment came from heaven. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. This day it shall be fulfilled. And God says, and you shall dwell with the animals in the field. Nebuchadnezzar literally was laid in the dust. That brother now slept on the field and on the ground like animals. Started having nails growing and all this other stuff. God literally humbled Nebuchadnezzar by laying his glory in the dust. But then 
Mary. Mary loved to listen to Jesus. And when you read Matthew 26, verses 6 to 13, you know what's beautiful? Jesus visits Simon the leper's house. And as Jesus visits his house and he's kind of going on and everybody's gathering around Christ and they love to be around the man, this woman just comes in. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had a lot to say. But every account of this story, you know how much Mary had to say? Nothing. You know why? Because Mary knew that I was amidst the one who has everything. And Mary knew there's nothing about me to say about me. And so all that Mary did was she came in there saying nothing about herself. And she just simply came to the master, took out that alabaster box, anointed him, wet his feet with her tears, took her hair, which is a woman's glory. She took her hair and wiped his feet that were covered in dust. And she voluntarily laid her glory in the dust at the feet of Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, you said, I want God to lay my glory in the dust. Do you want Nebuchadnezzar or do you want Mary? You see, brothers and sisters, the good news is both of them were saved. Isn't that something? Let me tell you something. God is a merciful God, brothers and sisters. He's an incredibly merciful God. But he had to humble Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar would not humble himself. Brothers and sisters, don't put yourself in a position where God has to do to you what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. Don't have God have to lay you in the dust. Instead, I think we can learn a lesson from Mary. Let's be like Mary. Everything that we think we can glory about, let's lay it in the dust before Jesus. Some of you, that might be your bank accounts. Some of you might glory in your bank accounts. That's one of the reasons why you might need to start emptying that thing and put it into the work. It might cause some of you to be lost. Southern California, you know you got wealth. You got, there's no excuse that a God-given sanitarium could not be set up in Southern California. There's absolutely no excuse. Southern California, you've been blessed. You've been blessed. And don't think for a moment that God will not hold you accountable in the judgment for what you're doing with your funds. And so God wants you to understand, maybe for some of us, our glory is in our bank accounts. Maybe for some of us, our glory is in our possessions. Whatever it may be, for some of us, our glory might be in our position. Maybe we got a high influential position and we're starting to think ourselves better and better and more than other people. Whatever it may be, wherever you think and wherever I think, because I'm searching my heart every day, brothers and sisters. Did you know being a speaking evangelist, a preacher, teacher, that there's an opportunity to glorify in that stuff? Did you know that? People calling you all over the planet, offering you this, that, and the other and everything. You have no idea how imperative it is that you keep your brothers in prayer whom God has called to the ministry. Amen. We struggle with being humble sometimes, and sometimes it's the people's fault because they love to lift the man up. So we have to understand we all struggle and battle with this thing about self-glory in one way or another. And so it is. Some of you are gifted in music. Please ask God to keep you humble. Whatever it may be, remember, we have a choice. Nebuchadnezzar or Mary. And brothers and sisters, I've made a covenant with God. I said, by your grace, Father, I want to approach you like Mary approached you.
by your grace, may my glory be laid in the dust. Through the power of God's spirit. And ultimately, may we find ourselves going home with Jesus. If you realize that glory is an issue for you, and you know, I need my glory to be laid in the dust. And you know you battle with that thing, like for real. And there's a self-righteousness that is still residing within our hearts. Uh, we compare ourselves with each other. We see ministers do it all the time. Ministers compare themselves to ministers. Make, make no mistake about it. That plague can affect us if we're not careful. So literally from the pulpit to the pew, this is a struggle for every single one of us. The question God is asking is, do you recognize it? Sometimes the woman with the long flowing hair thinks herself better than the ones with the short, coarse hair. Sometimes the light skin do with the dark skin. Sometimes the white does it with the black. Sometimes the black do it with the white. Sometimes the American does it with the non-American. Brothers and sisters, this is a disease. It's a disease. We keep looking at ourselves and we keep thinking more of ourselves than we should. And we're putting ourselves in the position that if we are saved, it might be Nebuchadnezzar's experience. And I don't want Nebuchadnezzar. I want Mary. I want Mary. And if you recognize, Lord, I'm probably on the road of being humbled. But please teach me how to humble myself in the sight of the Lord. And just to imagine, the greatest way to do that is to do what Mary did. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Learn of him. Study him. Live for him. And when you live for him, then you'll die for him. And you will be faithful unto death. If this is the experience you want, please stand to your feet with me. This is what I'm sending you home with. I want you to go home and just remember Nebuchadnezzar or Mary. Lord, I choose Mary. I choose Mary. And I believe that God is going to do something special in our hearts if you keep the experience that you've had throughout this weekend. Don't let the birds of Satan steal away the precious seeds that have been planted in our hearts. Let's seal our decisions with prayer. Our loving Father, thank you. You love us with an everlasting love. So incredibly gracious. So wonderfully merciful. Please teach us, Lord, to sit at the feet of Jesus, to learn of him. And may we behold him so strongly that he will consume our thoughts and that anything unlike him you will take it away. We give you permission, dear God, to take our hearts because we cannot give it. It is your property. And keep it pure, for we cannot keep it for thee. And save us in spite of ourselves, our weak, unchristlike selves. And mold us and fashion us and raise us to a holy atmosphere where only the rich currents of thy love can flow through our souls. And as we have this experience, help us, dear God, to share it with as many as possible before it is eternally too late. We commit ourselves into your hands, Father. Take our lives and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. 
we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.